So as folks are transitioning a little bit, I invite you to find 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I know we just got done praying, but let's pray again because this is a supernatural thing when God speaks to us through his word. We don't want this just to be Matt Broadway sharing some of his thoughts. We want to hear from God in his word, God's voice. So let's pray together before we begin. Father, thank you for giving us your word. We submit ourselves to it now. We ask that you would help us to do that. Help us to be soft-hearted toward your word, moldable, pliable in your hands. Please give us eyes that see and ears that hear, spiritual wisdom. Help us to be transformed by your word now, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we have been, as we work through this chapter, looking with clear eyes at the promised resurrection of the dead. Now, I know this is probably not the passage of Scripture you would expect on a Mother's Day for a Mother's Day sermon. It might seem a little strange. I felt like we should stay the course in our chapter here and finish what we began last week, even though it is Mother's Day this morning. But I think you'll find that it's actually a pretty good Mother's Day passage, because in the end we find out that it's all about what enables us to be steadfast in the ministries God has called us to, and that absolutely includes motherhood. That is absolutely a ministry and a calling that God puts on some of our lives. So, These troubled Corinthians doubted the resurrection, the scriptural teaching that those who trust and follow Jesus will be raised from the dead when he returns to new and eternal life with transformed bodies. And we can kind of understand why they might have doubted that because that seems a little bizarre to us. But last week we um, read some of Paul's arguments. Basically, he says it is going to happen. This week, he's going to have two more arguments and then sort of the closing application, what this means for us today. But the first verse in our passage, verse 50 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, sums up really well everything that we talked about last week. So we'll start with that. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, because we talked so much about this last week, I'm not going to dwell on it a whole lot, but I did think of another analogy uh, between last week and this week that I'll share with you. So when I was a kid, I liked to watch movies. I've mentioned that before, and I watched them in a format like this. Does anybody remember what this is? A VHS tape, you hear that? How physical that sounds? Actual tape in here. That's where this term rewind comes from. We say kids still use the term rewind even though their technology has nothing to wind anymore. But it came from technology like this. A physical cartridge with actual tape that somehow magically has encoded on it the movie and the audio. And so you put it into the slot of the VCR and it plays it. This is how I grew up watching movies. Some of you guys may still use a VCR, and that's totally fine. I'm not pronouncing any judgment on you. But I think we can all recognize that we're in sort of a new age now. And now, if you want to watch a movie, most of us watch it through a device like this or an iPad or maybe our smart TV. But it just sort of gets beamed to us digitally 
uh, without, this doesn't even have to be hooked up to anything to play a movie. Now, if I wanted to try to enjoy this movie from my childhood in this new technology, it doesn't work. There's no way to do it because this analog body is incompatible and cannot inherit the digital world. It can't live in the digital world. That's sort of what this transition from our physical bodies into the kingdom of God is like. This is not compatible with an eternity with God. Any more than this VHS tape is compatible with this device. So a transition has to be made. Some kind of transformation has to take place. That's what Paul spent a a lot of time trying to explain last week. This week he's moving forward a little bit, but he has one more point to make along those lines. And that is that both the dead and the living will have to be changed. Not just the dead, both the dead and the living will have to be changed. Let's see what he means here at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now again, a mystery biblically isn't a Sherlock Holmes style riddle to solve. It's something that hasn't been fully revealed yet. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. Now, many of you remember Miss Margaret Pig. Uh, some of you who are newer in the fellowship maybe didn't get a chance to know Miss Margaret. Uh, Miss Margaret lived right up to 100 years old, and I remember her telling me several times that she fully believed Jesus was going to return within her lifetime. She thought she was still going to be alive when Jesus returned. Now, she was so convinced that she about had me convinced. But that's how much she was looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, she has fallen asleep, and Jesus has not yet returned. But Paul's point here is there will be a generation that is living when Jesus returns. And the reason he points that out, again, he's arguing for the legitimacy of believing in the resurrection, and his point has been... We have to be transformed, so it's not going to be our corpses that arise. It's going to be a transformed body of some sort. And now he's saying, even those who aren't dead are going to have to be changed. So the resurrection can't just be a dead body becoming a living body, because living bodies, as we have them now, aren't going to be compatible. So it's not just a matter of being alive. It's a matter of being transformed into a format compatible with eternity with God. Okay, is everybody following me? I know this isn't probably a Mother's Day sermon that you've heard before. The question we have to be asking ourselves is, what on earth is this going to be like? Now, last week we really pressed hard on, do we really believe this bizarre teaching of Scripture? And we do. If, if we're Christians and we believe God's Word is taught very clearly, there will be a resurrection and a transformation when Jesus returns. What is this going to be like? I kind of picture that scene in Beauty and the Beast while we're talking about movies where the beast at the end, the curse is broken. Spoiler alert. He gets transformed back into a human being. And you remember that scene in the animated movie? I haven't seen the live action one. But he sort of gets lifted off the ground and he's sort of unconscious and there's all this wind swirling about. And slowly he transforms from the beast into human. I'm thinking about the right movie. You guys are looking at me like you've never even heard of Beauty and the Beast. Is it going to be something like that? I don't know. What's it going to look like? What's it going to sound like? What's it going to feel like? 
as we're transformed into our resurrection state, we might have new senses altogether to experience this. I have no idea. Paul does give us a couple of hints as we read on, starting in verse 52. Well, he says in verse 51, we shall all be changed. And then verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So we get a couple of little glimpses, little hints as to what this event is going to be like. It's going to be instantaneous. The twinkling of an eye, that's faster even than the blink of an eye. So it's going to be instantaneous. It's going to be final. That language about the trumpet, that's biblical imagery for the end, the signal that the end of this age has come. Jesus Christ is returning to finally install the kingdom of God fully operational for all eternity. Instantaneous, final, and then we get this additional imagery to what Paul has already been giving us in this chapter. It'll be kind of like putting something on. It says this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. Kind of makes me think of astronauts putting on a space suit so that they can survive out in space. Somehow we have to put on some new bodily nature to proceed into the kingdom of God. So that's his sort of final point in all that he's been talking about in chapter 15. You can go back and read the rest. But then he has one more thing to say. This isn't about the resurrection so much as it is about death itself. When all this happens, when the resurrection takes place, death will be defeated. Verses 54 through 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality... Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And then he refers back to some Old Testament scripture. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death defeats every earthly endeavor. There is no earthly endeavor that is not undone by death eventually. You think about it in terms of rock, paper, scissors. You play rock, paper, scissors. Okay, so let me see if I can get it straight. Rock, but then if your opponent goes paper, paper beats rock because it covers up the rock. So, but if you do paper and your opponent does scissors, scissors beats paper because it cuts up the paper. But if you do scissors, and your opponent does rock, rock beats scissors because it can crush the scissors. So that's rock, paper, scissors, in case any of you have never played rock, paper, scissors before. If you think about it in those terms, death is always the one that will win. So you can devote your life to health. You can eat nothing but, but vegetables and, and drink nothing but water, and you can exercise four times a day. You can have a gym membership and spandex and Everything is set. Listen to health podcasts on your iPhone all the time. But eventually, death defeats health. 
You can devote your life to money. You can work hard from the moment you can legally get a job and you can save every penny and you can invest wonderfully and perfectly and all your investments can accrue great wealth for you and you can invest in houses all over the place that are you're building equity and it's, it's beautiful. But eventually, death defeats money. Everything you can think of as an earthly endeavor eventually defeated by death. Even really good things. Health is good. Money is, is good. Family, hobbies, entertainment, achievements, career. Eventually, defeated by death. But the really, really good news is that Jesus defeats death. Death seems undefeatable, but Jesus defeats it. He was raised, defeating death Those who trust and follow him will be raised, defeating death. Now, this is huge. And the older you get, the more obvious the reason why this is huge becomes because you feel yourself nearing that date of your own death. And you start to see how invincible it it feels. But it's not invincible. Jesus has defeated death itself. If he hadn't, death, I believe, would render every pursuit in this life pretty much meaningless. All we would have is just the pleasures of today. Get as much out of this as you can because it's all there is. But no, Jesus has defeated death. It has no victory, no sting. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is a bee with no stinger. It's a snake with no venom. It's a scorpion with no tail. It cannot hurt us. Now, next, Paul gives us Two verses that are just packed tight with the theology behind this that we do not have time to unravel, but I'm going to read them and say just briefly a few things about it. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a whole sermon series could be built on these couple of verses, and I'm not going to do that this morning. It says, the sting of death is sin. If you remember Genesis 3, sin was what opened the doorway to death. Death is part of the curse for the original sin. Why do we die? Because of sin. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. You remember when we studied Romans for two and a half years? A big part of that was him explaining the place of the law. And there's this amazing truth in there that the law doesn't cure our sin problem. Like the rules that God gives us, the right and wrong, it doesn't fix our sin problem. Actually, what it does is it stirs up our sin and exposes it so that we'll realize we need a Savior. There's a lot more to be said about that. Paul drops it in so quickly that I'm just going to also have to drop that in real quickly. But the point is, the law, trying to be good and follow the rules, doesn't solve your sin problem, and therefore it can't solve your death problem. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus solves our sin problem. He died in payment for it on the cross so that everybody who would trust and follow him could be forgiven. Jesus solves our sin problem, and therefore Jesus alone solves our death problem. That's his point. In Jesus Christ, death has been defeated. So, to sum up kind of what we've seen here so far in chapter 15, 
Jesus was raised from the dead, and those who trust and follow Jesus will be raised from the dead to spend eternity with God. Death will be defeated. Now we get to verse 58, what this means for us now. Let's read verse 58 together. This is where we'll land. Therefore, based on all of this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's an awesome verse. Some of you who are not predisposed to enjoy thinking through theology, you hung in there, and now you get the payoff. Based on all this theology about the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Belief in the resurrection then, in the future to come, leads to steadfast abundance in the work of the Lord now. Belief always precedes action. When we try to build a life of action for the Lord, apart from belief in true things about what he has done, it always breaks down and we fizzle out. But when we build it based on belief in what's true, in this case about the resurrection, we have a basis to do the work of the Lord steadfastly and abundantly. Steadfast means that you set yourself solidly and firmly on doing the work of the Lord, immovably, as it says. I will be about the work of the Lord. That's what it means to be steadfast in this. A determination. This will be what my life is about, the work of the Lord. Abundance just means what you would think, overflowingly. In fact, in the Greek, it just uses two words that mean almost the exact same thing as translated here, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But this is really his emphasis, overflowing. This is not just meant to be occasionally or momentary spurts of work for the Lord. Our lives are meant to be drenched in the work of the Lord. The resurrection reminds us that the work of the Lord is not pointless, it's permanent in a way that no other pursuit is. Think about the things that you've devoted your time to over this past week, this past month, this past year, your life up to now. What will last in eternity? Scripture describes it as a fire coming through and it burns away all the straw and stubble and leaves only remaining what was done in the name of the Lord. There is no pursuit permanent like the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? Well, I I believe that's what this whole letter has been about. He's at the end of this letter, and I think he's giving them one great big reason to apply themselves to everything he's been trying to teach them. Now, we've been working our way through this letter over the course of years every summer, so I don't expect you to remember off the top of your your head everything that he has said to them that would comprise the work of the Lord. But I've kind of boiled it down. I'm just going to read to you sort of the main highlights of what he's been trying to teach them to devote themselves to. As you think about your own life and your own steadfast, abundant devotion to the work of the Lord. 
Here's some examples of what that could look like. Pursuing unity with one another in the church. Walking in spiritual wisdom instead of earthly wisdom. In other words, letting God's word guide your decisions and your thinking. Growing in humility. Repenting of sin. Resolving disputes. Fleeing immorality and idolatry. Engaging in purposeful marriage and purposeful singleness. Living daily life in communion with Christ. Giving up our rights for the good of others. Using our spiritual gifts for the good of the church. Loving one another with Christ-like love. Worshiping together in an orderly, purposeful manner. So there's just a snapshot of some of the work of the Lord that Paul's been trying to encourage them to devote themselves to. And then here at the end, he says, Jesus was raised from the dead. You're going to be raised from the dead. Therefore, be steadfastly abundant in your pursuit of these things. Because these things are permanent. These are not meant to be occasional accomplishments that come about when you feel particularly spiritual. These are meant to be your steadfast, abundant way of life. When I was a kid in elementary school, we'd play King of the Hill. Maybe if you weren't as familiar with rock, rock, paper, scissors, maybe you've played King of the Hill before where there's a mound of dirt or whatever or sand, and one kid gets on top and says, I'm King of the Hill, and that's every other kid's signal to do everything they can to knock that kid off the top so that they can be King of the Hill. Well, I can remember a friend of mine who... I don't even know what the purpose of this could be, but he had like King of the Hill gloves he would put on and they were like the knuckles cut out and he would get up there and I'm King of the Hill. He'd plant his feet there. That was ridiculous. I don't know what the gloves were going to do for him. But that image of being planted there, I am standing here. This is my place. Go ahead and try to knock me off. That's the language Paul's using here. Steadfast, immovable. I will be about the work of the Lord because Jesus was raised from the dead, proving everything he said to be true, and one day I'll be raised from the dead. And so I'm going to devote my life to the most permanent things. I'm not going to live the way the world lives. I'm not going to go with the flow and waste my time and waste my life on the empty pursuits that everybody who doesn't know Jesus devotes themselves to. I am here. This is what I'm going to be about. I'll close with two specific examples to maybe help paint a picture of this. One from this letter and one recognizing that today's Mother's Day. So first we'll talk about worship. That was the last example that he gave before he got to this in chapter 15. Worshiping together in an orderly, purposeful manner is central to what it is to be a Christian. It is so easy to get moved off of this. It is so easy to get knocked off of our determination to worship with our fellow Christians. I mean, why get up on Sunday morning? Worked hard all week, gotten up early all week. Saturday's full of whatever Saturdays get filled up with. Sunday's my one chance to catch up on some sleep. Why get up early and go worship with my church family? Why get my kids up and go through that heartache of getting them dressed only to turn back around and see them as disheveled as they ever were somehow? They don't want to go. They say it's boring. 
Why go through the trouble of trying to teach them that this is central and important? Why not sleep in? Why not devote Sunday to my hobbies? It's supposed to be a day of rest. I find that more restful. Why not devote it to hobbies? Why not devote it to my kids' sports? Why not give in to the cultural pressure to, to forsake my church family and my relationships and worshiping together and devote myself to my kids' sports? Everybody else is doing it. All of his friends are doing it. He'll get kicked off the team if I don't do it. Why do the hard work of actually participating in the life of the church in gathered worship? Why give it any focus on Saturday when I've got so much other stuff to do? Why prepare my heart for it? Why come in here? Why sing out these songs with my voice? Singing's embarrassing. Why come to church focused on my brothers and sisters and how I can build them up in Christ? Well, Paul's answer, at least one good reason, is the resurrection. Because one day you're going to (laughs) die. One day you're going to die, and all of a sudden it's going to become clear how empty some of these pursuits have been and how valuable something like gathering for worship with the church is, how permanent that is. This is the closest taste to permanency when we're doing the work of the Lord, especially together. It's the work of the Lord that lasts. Those who get moved off of that hill, in this case, this example of gathered, purposeful, orderly worship, they perhaps have been moved off of that hill because they've lost sight of the resurrection. They've just lost sight of the big picture of what all this is about. I read somewhere that now regular church attendance is considered twice a month. It used to be considered every Sunday, unless you're out of town for some reason, which might only happen once or twice in a year. But now if you're twice a month, then that's considered regular church involvement. Pastors are trying to adapt to the new reality, trying to figure out how to go about orderly worship when you kind of have A team and B team. You know, one Sunday, A-team's all here. The next Sunday, they're going doing whatever they're doing, and B-team's there, and then it swaps back and forth. I was talking to Glenn and Balser about this, my grandfather-in-law, former pastor here, just trying to grapple with this reality that we face in the church of sort of low priority it is. And I was talking to him about it. I said, what did you do? And he said, honestly, that was not our issue. We had our issues, but that wasn't one of them. Back then, it was a given that on Sunday, families were in church. Parents wanted their kids to get used to that rhythm of being in church because it was important. And he said, Matt, I don't know how I would do it. He said, I think the pastor is harder now than it's ever been. Remembering the resurrection, it, it wouldn't just motivate us to attend church. It would motivate us to steadfastly abound in worship which would include our gathered worship as a church. See, this should be a release valve. You know, like your your spigot at home, you turn it and the water gushes out. You don't have to go and draw it from buckets from a well anymore. Sometimes in our current church culture, it seems like you have to try to extract Christianity from those who call themselves Christian instead of giving them a release valve for what's in their hearts, that, that abundance to pour out. I'll give you one more example. This is in relation to the fact that it's Mother's Day, and that's parenthood. It is very easy to get moved off of the work of the Lord in parenthood. Stress and busyness 
and just the pressures of our culture are constantly pushing and pulling us off of that hill. Start missing family meals together. Start missing conversations together. Relationship starts to erode between parents and children. Soon we'll lose sight altogether of our purpose in parenting, which isn't to give them every opportunity that life affords, although that's good and great and do that as you can. The main purpose is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because all those extracurricular activities, as valuable as they are, one day death's going to defeat those things. Are we giving them what's permanent? Are we giving them what's going to withstand after the resurrection? Those who are moved away from purposeful parenting, perhaps one reason for that is that they've lost sight of this bigger picture of the resurrection, of what our destiny is. Remembering the resurrection can result, according to this passage, in steadfast abundance in the work of the Lord in our parenting. So, summing up, Jesus was raised from the dead. There's great reason to believe that it's true. Jesus was raised from the dead, proving everything that he said, proving that he is who he claimed to be. And part of what he claimed is the promise that we too who trust and follow him will be raised from the dead in the bodily resurrection to come when he returns. And therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When that resurrection time comes, all the effort you've put in to parenting in the Lord, to worshiping together with the church, to all those things I listed out, all the effort required in following Jesus for real, not just saying I'm a Christian, but actually following Jesus, all of that you will see was worth it. It was not vain. It was not empty. It was full of eternal value. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace toward us. We fall so short of perfection, but I'm so grateful. So grateful for your word this morning. Grateful to be brought back into reality of what's important and what is lasting in this world. Let us not shape our lives like our neighbors who do not know you. Let our lives be evidently different in the way we prioritize, in the way we give, in the way we work, what we do with our time and our energy, our homes. Lord, would you please help us to be steadfast. Help us to be immovable. Help us to always abound in the work of the Lord. Help us to remember the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.